Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to Season 4 and the 89th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Today's show is very different. Uh, And today's show is a live recording from a session that uh, Rob Fisher spoke about at the uh, Brisbane Safety Differently Book Club um, as part of Rob's tour when he came down to see me in February this year. And we did some stuff around New Zealand and Australia. Now this is hilarious, Um, I actually feel like calling this um, Rob Fisher Unplugged rather than Rob Fisher Live. And a big thanks to the uh, effort from uh, Josh Bryant for his amazing production and cinematography skills, and also for Stephen Harvey, the master of ceremonies. So please listeners, sit back and enjoy this nearly hour of Rob Fisher Unplugged or Rob Fisher live in the title of episode 89 crikey rob fisher down under at the safety differently book club to the brisbane safety differently hashtag friggin asterisk club right so lots of people here so it's getting bigger and better and we're getting more drunk as time goes on all right but it's awesome but uh so welcome Along, there's still a few more people to come, believe it or not. I tried to limit the tickets, and then I just went, ah, just come, just, we'll be all right. We'll, we'll just have a laugh, right? So, um, very honoured to have Rob here. Well, I think, I think you're all agree, it's a bit of a superstar guest for us, right? And, obviously, well, obviously we had you before, Brent, as well. I, I, don't, I don't want to downplay you and... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, Rob, oh, yeah, I forgot about him. <laughs> But so, th- thank you all for coming along. But what I would like Brent to do, if you don't mind, just introducing sure. Rob and and uh, how he got to Australia. Guys, I'm Brent Sutton from uh, Learning Teams Inc. And uh, I was pleased to pin with my colleague Brett Robinson. We were your first international authors. Not that we really call New Zealand international, but we, we came across. And I got shipped back free, called a 501 ticket. So it was really good. That was, that was a bit of a big night as well, wasn't it? it? That, wasn't, we, we, it got, was we got a bit excited, didn't we, Sam? <laughs> October the 19th, I remember the date of time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in my journey, I've been really lucky to meet uh, lots of people in the world of hop in my, in my journey, the work that I've been doing. And I've always been really interested in understanding the history of hop and who those, who those key players were in forming what we, what we think of as being hop today. Because hop isn't new, hop's been around for a long time. And I've been really fortunate to know people like Todd Conklin, but also people like Rob Fisher. Because in, in my book, and this is not blowing smoke up anyone's ass, in my book, Rob has been doing hop for longer than anyone, anyone else has been. Because he is involved in the doing bit. And there's a lot of talking about what hop is. There's a lot of talking about the value of hop. But in the work that we do, and the reason why I have a relationship with my mate Rob, 
It's because it's the how and when that really matters. If we really want to do safety differently, we really have to embrace what those core principles are and those and, and the history that sits behind it as well. So when the opportunity that Rob said he was coming down to a, to a, to a conference and he said, oh, I'm going to pop into New Zealand for a, you know, a cup of tea and a catch-up. After we had a chat about the fact that it's two different countries and a lot of distance, it was Rob's first official visit to New Zealand when he came over. Yeah. And he's transited a few there, but we nearly let him out of the border. So this time, <laughs> he was free range. <laughs> they let me out of the airport. Yeah, it was great. And um, uh, Rob, Rob got to meet people like yourselves who are very hungry in this hot space, in that learning space. And Rob was also lucky that we had a bit of a, a CEO-type forum on a Friday afternoon in Auckland as well, where he got to meet some leaders. And I think Rob really likes the relaxed way that we go about connecting and communicating. And we're all family to us, although that family is highly dysfunctional. <laughs> but I've always said it's our job to embrace diversity. So welcome, my dysfunctional family. And with that, I would like to introduce Bob Fisher. Thank you. Appreciate that, Brian. And just, be, just before we start, my own sort of little message. Uh, Sean's not here yet, but Sean put up the money for us to be in this room and to get some pizzas later. All right, so I want to keep this as free as possible, right? This room does cost money. Um, it's not that much, right? But it still costs, right? So I definitely don't want to charge people for doing this. This is all about having a laugh. Even though it's getting bigger, I just want us to have some fun and, and just connect and, and make sure we enjoy, on a Thursday night, we enjoy the half-price sort of crafties, all right? <laughs> Bit of a change, obviously, for a, we've done a Monday because Rob's here. We, we had to sort of change it that way, but... Uh, Bloody hell, Rob, you weren't convenient, were you? Yeah, I know. Never um, have been. So please, when you, when you come back, can you make it a Thursday next time? Yeah. But obviously... <laughs> Guys, we're here. I think some of you have already got copies of Rob's book. I've already read it. As people may know, I'm a massive consumer. You'll know that, Steph. I'm a massive consumer of books, right? You, you reckon I've not read it, but I have. Right. We'll find out. Yeah. But, mate, so just, so just really starting off, Rob, just yeah. wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your oh, human performance and the hot journey, really, yeah. where it sort of started. So I really appreciate you guys having, having me in, and, and it... It really is an honor because I don't think, I was just telling these guys, I don't think that in 1992 when people were wondering why James Reason wrote Human Air, um, that somebody would be sitting around having a beer in New, in New Zealand or in Australia and talking about the journey. Uh, again, I'm Rob Fisher. I own a company called Fisher Improvement Technologies. and. We spent the last 30 years helping organizations and people understand how and why people make mistakes, and it's especially mistakes could be catastrophic. And there's only three things you can do with one of those with a mistake. You can prevent some, you can reduce their probability, or you can mitigate their consequence. That is as simple and as complex as hop gets. But if you understand that, then you're starting to frame everything. I was a uh, naval submariner, uh, nuclear chemist. I was also periscope photographer, special operations, special forces for about 10 years. And then I got out and went to work at a nuclear power plant 
and everything was very regimented. And after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, they were really blaming a lot of people in control rooms and pilots were being blamed for air crashes and operators were being blamed for plants blowing up. All this was happening. <clears throat> and so when Dr. Reason wrote Human Air, we got handed that book and said, hey, go make this work. And it was the only thing out there on human air or human performance, that, like it was called during, during the day. And so I, I had to work on that. So it was on the original development team of what back then was the human performance standards for the U.S. nuclear industry, and then that spread to the World Association of Nuclear Operators, and then that spread out to utilities and industry. And the more I got farmed out, uh, the more my wife told me that we should be doing it for a living instead of doing it for someone else. So started my first company in 1992. We've been doing human performance, human performance improvement system, human factors, hop. There's probably two or three more in the middle there. Um, but the bottom line is we've been doing safety differently for 30 years. And lately, people have started talking about doing safety differently. But over the years, we've had about 350 deployments of hop concepts, full-blown deployments. About 400,000 students globally. Uh, we've deployed 15 or 20 times here in Australia, Ian, Matt, some, somewhere around there. And they say, well, what, you know, what's that all about? Why don't we know anything about you guys? Well, we come in, we work with the clients. We don't ever do any events like this. We're focused on making what they do better and making it sustainable and then we then we go out and we go to someplace else so we've never been th that's why this is so unique to me we've never been involved in anything like this where you know we just get to shoot the breeze and listen to what y'all have to say so that we can learn along the way we have kind of been at the bleeding edge of what is now hop for that 30 years first people to kind of convince leaders that they needed to think differently. First, people to provide tools that actually worked at all levels of the organization. First, people to put integration in as part of the process. So we do education, integration, and sustainability all part of the process. Instead of teach them, give them the tools, we're done. Or just, tell, just talk to the leaders, you'll be fine. None of those are true. So if you ever have any questions on what it looks like from a company of 50 to a company of 70 or 80,000, let us know. We, we've seen all of those answers. So um, again, we've been, we've deployed in about 40 countries in 12 different languages. And the thing that has been consistent over those 30 years is we've dealt with humans. The other thing that's been consistent is every sector we go in thinks they're different. We're different because we're different because we're different because. Mm -hmm. And my question back to senior leaders, I, I do most of my work, Matt and Ian back there in the back, they're, they're in the trenches. They're helping the organization do what needs to be done. I get to go in and shift leaders' paradigms. And should I share that quote about the shift in paradigms? Yeah, so, please share. On your call. So you have to think about, if you want to change somebody's paradigm, you have to give them a paradigm more powerful than the one you're asking them to leave. And you gotta be good at that. You gotta have that planned out. Well, I will tell you this, 
their paradigms they're coming from are in a spectrum of about five. The paradigm you're taking them to is only one or two. Once you know those things and you go in and start shifting their paradigm, they start believing you. They start listening to you. They start reading what you're giving them. They start doing what you're telling them because their paradigm shifts. That doesn't take months or years. It takes days. And at the most weeks during what we call soak time, where we give them the opportunity to go try some of this without the pressure of the organization to be good at it. So you can go out and screw it up a little bit because nobody knows you're trying this thing yet. So um, we've just continued to kind of fly below the radar um, for, for these 30-odd years. So is that enough history? Is there oh, something man, I left out? That, no, no, that's, that's magnificent. Thank you. I'm going to make chat to you about your, obviously you're here because of the book club. Right. All over. Asterisk. <laughs> well, they, they told me the book club wasn't as important as the asterisk. Yeah. That's like, what they said. That's, I'm just telling you how they got me here. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to deny it, right? It's because it's true. It's, yeah, yeah, that's a read the fine print, Rob. But, but yeah. I'd love to know a wee bit more about the book and sort of yeah. how it came to fruition, how long it took you, okay. and, and, and the why, really. So understanding mental models came about because over the years we've done performance modes and performance error modes, and we keep running into companies that either don't teach people skill-based, rule-based, and knowledge-based, or really, really teach it bad. And when you really teach it bad or you don't teach it right or you don't come from the science and turn it into the practical application, people then don't use it. So they say, well, our operators and maintenance people don't need that stuff, so we're not going to teach it anymore. If somebody says that, you did it wrong. So for years, we've been teaching it right. And, and I'll probably mention Todd Conklin's name a couple of times tonight, but Todd and I were sitting around and I was actually writing a book on deploying human performance. He said, yeah, yeah, don't write that book. He said, you need to write the performance modes book right now. I said, okay, why? He said, well, because right now the explosion is happening and people are leaving performance modes behind because they don't understand them. And they're being taught wrong. And people are saying, well, because you teach it wrong, nobody pays attention to it. I'll just tell you from a performance mode Y'all have heard of GEMS, General Error Modeling System from that the Dr. Reason put together? That piece needed some derivation. The work that Rasmussen and Jensen did in the 60s and early 70s, 1960s and early 70s, that needed some derivation work. And once that was done, we knew how to teach it, but, but people would say, our people won't understand that. It takes too long. Yeah, that 15 or 20 minutes it takes to talk about performance modes is a crap ton of your day, isn't it? <laughs> if you do it right. So Todd said, look, write the performance mode book. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll write it. So I started writing it pre-COVID, and I was just writing sporadically. And, of course, you know, a lot of our consultants said, you know you have all the information for the book. It's throughout all of our materials. You just need to put it all together. I said, yeah, 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 you know, I'll do that. So I wrote the first version of the book. And, oh, it was horrible. <laughs> and I thought it was fantastic because it, taught, it was very technical. And, and so I sent it out to three people to read. And one of the people that, that read it is right there in the back of the room. And all three of them very quietly said, or I'll just quote Matt, 
jännä. And I, so I speak a little Australian. And, uh, this is a family show. Oh, sorry. They'll be right. See what I did there? <laughs> um, so I said, well, wh why not? He said, this isn't you. You've been teaching this stuff for, at that point, 25 years. And you know exactly what the questions and answers are. But you tried to write this like an academic. You try to be something that you're not. And what you do is we tell stories about what make, makes things un be understood well. So tell stories and mix it with the science and teach people how they can go out and teach performance modes so people will use them. And I will tell you this, uh, over 350 deployments, the one thing that more people take home with them and remember forever is catching themselves going into knowledge-based performance mode and they're vulnerable before they make the mistake. And people around the world are so thankful of that. So performance modes have worked in the middle of the jungles of Brazil, in the middle of a nu nuclear power plant, and everywhere in between. You can't tell us that people won't understand it if you teach it right. If they don't understand it and they don't use it, you taught it wrong. You talked about it wrong. So Todd said, write the book. When, after, after these folks, all three of them pulled me aside and said, no, no, this, this, that, no, <laughs> just no. Uh, I went actually back, so if you're entertaining writing a book, we talked about this, I went back and said, people are learning a lot of things online. So there's a company called Scribe, and they do a free online book writing course. And so I said, hmm, I'll do that. We're out there telling people they should follow procedures. Wonder if I can. So, so I followed that, that scribe process and then created something that people would really edit and, and hopefully use. And I, I really do hope people like it. So it took me a couple of months to, to write it, but it wasn't every day. It wasn't all day. It was an hour a day, a very strong focus, and, and then some some rewriting to that makes sense, that doesn't make sense, and, and then figuring out. I, I really wanted to share part of my story, and if you don't mind, I'll tell you part of the introduction of the book. So I was at university, and my mother died as the result of a medical error, and it's the introduction to the book. I was 18 years old. I had to quit university and go home and raise my two brothers who were uh, six years and 12 years younger than me, and I was pissed off because I needed somebody to blame. They had taken my mother away from me. They'd changed my entire life. Those doctors needed to pay. And I spent many years of my life in that. How many of y'all have lost someone and really want, needed somebody to blame for that loss? I think in our lives, we have people like that. And that was me. Uh, I went and joined the Navy just to get away from, from the family that was created after that after her death. And, and so I think in the back of my mind, I was always yearning for the knowledge of why they screwed up so bad and I lost my mom. But what I learned was what they were doing was the second time it had ever been done. Uh, 
the first time was fairly successful. And in the book, I actually say the words that I remember the doctors from being 18 years old saying to us when she passed away. And now I can tie that to all of these principles, right? Error is normal. If we don't play that, if we don't play that in, if we don't understand it, we won't be prepared for it. Blame fixes nothing. I live my entire life blaming those doctors for taking my mom away, right? You take all those hop principles and you think about those, and my hope was that this gets people to one set of, of one piece of human and organizational performance so it'll open their minds to how everything else will work. So it wasn't the whole holistic hop. It's, it's this one thing. You do this one thing well, and a lot of other things will call, fall into place. So. Oh, awesome, mate. No, thank you. That was an amazing response. We went for a few beers yesterday, and it was very good. But there was something there. Yeah. Just a few, yeah. And I, I was, I was, I'm not known as like I'm Samuel for me, sensible for a reason, cute. right? <laughs> but you <clears throat> came up with this beautiful quote, and I just felt that it was really worth sharing with everyone, or at least expanding on it. So you you spoke about like you can go you can go broke by being safe, but you won't go broke by chasing operational excellence. Is that? Yes. Yeah, so that sort of, so we've we've basically shifted over time. I. Just a little bit of background. I've sat on the board for the International Conference for Fatality and Serious Injury Elimination for a long time. Fatality and serious injury elimination is a good thing. Would we all agree with that? But what we started to think was, you can be safe and not be operationally excellent, but you cannot be operationally excellent without being safe. So if you seek operational excellence, a holistic approach, and, and in, in the way we deploy, we tell people, look, the system doesn't know whether you're doing something related to quality, safety, effectiveness, efficiency, or productivity. You teach people the system to look at, it works for all of those things. But here's the magic thing. It also doesn't know whether you're at home, at work, or at play. So if you give somebody something that will work for them at home and work on anything they're doing at work, they'll start doing it because it works for them, not because you want them to do something. So we started looking at that, and that, that's a holistic operational excellence, right? And safety comes along with that. But when we start talking just about safety, we're actually initiating the very silos we're trying to make people break. Be safe, be careful, pay attention, safety first, safety one, safety two, safety differently. All of those things mean that safety's over here and everything else we do is, a, oh, we focus on safety. Okay, well, if you focus on safety, what do you remove focus on to do that? Because if our brains can't multitask, if you tell me you focus on safety, that means you're removing that from somewhere else. Well, if we're focusing more holistically, safety will come along with it. I'm not saying don't talk about safety. I think this afternoon we kind of talked about that, right? It's not don't talk about safety. It's don't make it so that safety is a thing other than other things. So when you talk about operational excellence, now you get all the leaders say, okay, we get that. I can put financial things on operational excellence. I can put reality on operational excellence. I can put customers on operational excellence. But I can't do any of those if I just talk about safety. 
So it's about changing that conversation, that narrative, to operational excellence, including safety. Yeah, I love that. See, why, that I went to, see why I wanted you to hear it? Because it was like really, I was a few beers in and I was like, oh. That's worth repeating well, tomorrow. Here's what All you right. actually did. Josh, take that down. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so, was, I said right, write that down. Yeah, just so we can. write that down, yeah. Mate, just that, another sort of line from your book as well, which I really thought was worth tapping in and exploring, was just, uh, you had this quote talking about, most, pe most people wish bad things didn't happen, but very few understand the predictable and systemic and human elements behind the bad outcomes. I was just wondering if you could sort of maybe tap into that a little bit and share some of your so thoughts. One of the things I wanted to do with the book was make it more than a hop book or more than a safety book or more than a, a just professional technical book. And I got to thinking about that as I was kind of writing, the, writing early on. And I thought, how do, how do most people handle things like mistakes? Well, they happen, and then we wish they hadn't happened. So if you think about the people in your life that aren't touching safety the way we are, don't think this way because they've never been taught, they wish bad things hadn't happened or they wish bad things wouldn't happen, but they have no measure of how to control those. But when you give them precursors, when you give them triggers that tell them they're vulnerable to e either an incident or an error, they just soak that up. And, and that really hit home with me when, so my oldest grandchild is 20 years old. What, no applause for that one? Uh, <laughs> Where'd you find time? I guess so, yeah. And, and when she was about 16 or 17, she asked me to help her with her algebra homework. And I said, sure, I'll help you. I mean, I'm, I was a nuclear chemist. How hard can algebra be? <laughs> so we're sitting there, and she has this problem, and I'm leaning over her shoulder, and I say, well, honey, I think that you have to move this over to the other side, and then what's going to happen is I'm pretty sure that's going to cancel out this part of that equation, and then I think you'll be able to do this. And my young granddaughter looked up to me and said, Papa, it sounds like you're in knowledge-based performance mode. <laughs> And I thought, she's been soaking this in and hearing that when you hear somebody say, I think, I believe, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost certain, they're actually telegraphing their error rate. So she's been soaking this in. And then when I just say those kind of innocuously, she takes that and repeats it back. So how powerful is it for your uh, uh, family and your friends and your peers, that they can then see those triggers and do something about it. And again, I wanted to write it in a way that people could relate to that, even if they don't do what we do. Did I answer the question? Yes. yes. Yeah, no, we, we just love hearing you talk, mate. It's, no. It's just the, fantastic. But your I, your we is very small in that statement. <laughs> <laughs> mate, Ooh, that really came out wrong. So we can we can just count. Let's, oh boy! Oh boy! Let's let we'll trim that bit out. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, another uh, another quote from the book, and you spoke about better performance isn't necessarily more rules, and that more having more rules doesn't make an organisation safer. Now I'm just about to embark on a 
like a project where we're removing sort of life-saving rules. Yeah. And I know that there's people in this room who's also done that sort of work as well. So I was just wondering, what advice would you give yeah. to companies, really, who are now going to start doing this? Because we know the research is telling us that it's past its sale by date, really. Conflict alert. <laughs> Here we go. Remember, we've done this at the floor level for 30 years. So I'm going to give you a different answer than you've heard. I've heard a lot of people that say that. I'm, I believe more rules don't make you safer. But I also believe I'm... I was an operator for 22 years. You add Matt, Ian, and I's operations and maintenance up together, you have 60 years worth of operation. And life-saving rules, save-your-life rules, rules to love by or leave by, cardinal rules, whatever you want to call them, they were written in the blood of our brothers and sisters. You gave them to people in that vein. And now you're going to say, nope, somebody said those are bad, so we're going to take them away. Really? What about all those people? What about all the families of... I, you may see I get a little bit emotional over this. I'm not saying we did life-saving rules right. Right? I'm not saying we did save your life rules. But a renaming and a reframing of the lessons that we learned over the years in the blood of our brothers and sisters seems to be a better path than, as I shared today, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? We, we tend to think sometimes that if people don't like something or it didn't work well, it needs to be taken away instead of fixed. Is there something in those life-saving rules that wasn't right? It, I mean, do you, so from here on out, Let's not check confined spaces to see if the atmosphere's good. From here on out, when you're going to excavate, be careful. You, you know what you're doing. You know work is done. Just be careful when you're excavating because all those folks out there, they'll know how to do it. Bravo, Sierra. We've captured that stuff. Just because we didn't capture it well doesn't mean we didn't capture it. So now, this is me. How do we shift that, both the narrative and the procedures? Possibly thinking, hello? 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 Is that? That's hello? the big yeah. <laughs> What are we talking about? How do we shift that talk? If you say life saving rules, here, I'm a big person on language, okay? If you say life-saving rules, what you're really saying is we're going to create this set of rules that's going to save your life. So wait a minute, my life may not be at risk. That's why I'm not paying much attention to the rules. But what if they were life-preserving controls? And now we're going to frame those in the controls that we need that the workforce tells us they need to preserve their life and honor the lives of the people that were lost that gave us those rules. So again, a bit of a conflict alert. I think it's, I think it's almost unethical to throw them away. Because when you start throwing them away, people are gonna find some other things to throw away, right? Or they're just gonna ignore some other things. 
what we really need to do is step back and, and create a team that says, how do we make this so it works for everybody? Remember, most of the executives and organizations that created, I'm just going to frame them all in life-saving rules, but you know, whatever they named them, most of those people, their hearts were more in keeping people's life safe than they were in holding people accountable. And behind it, somebody came in and said, now that you got all those written down, remember, if you violate a life-saving rule, you are, say it with me, out of here. Right? That's the path of them. Mm -hmm. But now we know, well, wait a minute. <laughs> let's, let's give him a hand. Let's, come on, everybody. Can you? Is that the other Steve Harvey ringing? Yeah, yeah, the funny one. Can you go in? There's a guy downstairs. Can you? Guido? Nicky, can you get Guido? Guido's cut. He's got. He's lost. He, he wants to. Can you find him? Guido, Nicky. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. Somebody stopped Guido. and seeked out help, and we Bloody laughed hell. at him. Hey, sounds like we're at work. <laughs> Let's get so come back in. So if you think about um, again the way we've kind of holistically deployed human and organizational performance, you have to give people a definition of an error, and then you have to give them a definition of an error, a deviation, a violation, an active error, and a latent error. And then the leaders have to start using those. And then what they discover is, well, if we believe dimming. 90% of events are caused by something other than just the individual, then 90% of our problems aren't caused by violations, they're caused by errors. So now, all these times that we thought people were violating life-saving rules that we either sent home or fired or disciplined, they're now scratching their heads going, oh, what do we do about that? I said, well, you move on. And you start analyzing things differently. So now you don't have nearly as many violations of life-saving rules, and they're not nearly as big as a hassle as they were when every time somebody violated a rule, they're gone. It's, it's about reframing them within the human factors and the knowledge of how people succeed and fail, not in the life-saving rules don't work. We did some research, life-saving rules suck, and they provide damage. Well, yeah, they provide damage if you don't use them right. Mm -hmm. But man, I'd just like for you, if you've ever had a fatality in your business or, or in your organization or an organization in your sector, I want you to think about the families of the people that perished and how you told them that you were going to learn from that. And then you go back to them 15 years later and tell them, yeah, but... Those didn't work so well, so we're going to find another way. So, oh, yeah. end of conflict alert. That's my. And if you want more information on that, call me. We'll, I'll do a. I, I would be more than happy to have that conversation with anybody, including your leaders. If you want to throw them away, you better know exactly what you're going to put in their place, and it better be damn good, because you're taking all the learnings from all the lives that have been lost before on those 12 to 15 things that we know kill people. Yeah.
That's magnificent answer. Thank you for that. I mean, I've just got, I've just got a couple of questions. Um, one of, my name's Christian, by the way. It's kind of be groundbreaking, but just listening to you and listening to what you're saying today, I'll just write down, take a look at the repurposing and things like that, or a different better path. Write down our beliefs, our expectations, our accountability. Yeah. And so what we've also done, Christian, is that right? What we've also done, Christian, is we've given the leaders models that that accountability is way down the chain and tell them accountability is developed, not demanded. And here's how you develop accountability. Trust is developed, not demanded, and here's how you develop it. So they go out and they work on those things that develop those, and then magically nobody's got to talk about it anymore. Because I'm accountable to you, you're accountable to me, we're accountable to each other. When somebody's out there, they're accountable to each other. And, and, and in a lot of organizations, I'll just throw one thing out that you can watch for in your organization. Is that all right? This is our experience. So as we've gotten bigger and better and grown and, and around the world, we start attracting organizations that are at the top of their game. So about 30% of the people that come to us come to us because they're at the top of their game and they want to stay there or get better. In, so they're already in that highly reliable range. And when we go into those organizations, do you know you never hear them talk about accountability? Ever. Now, does that mean accountability doesn't exist in organizations that are highly reliable and sustainable and no, they're all accountable to because it was ingrained. It was built into their systems. And everybody that comes in understands how that plays in. It's not a thing that happens. Okay? In organizations that struggle with accountability, here's the zinger. They talk about it all the time. And you, you only you know where you're at on that journey. But it's easy to get from one to the other. So Yeah, thank you, mate. I've got so I've got one question left, right? And it's so I'm not gonna judge people in here, but there's lots of lazy people here, I would reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh if if you could pull out one chapter of your book that the guys can't miss, yeah. What what chapter will it be and and why? So the two, so so basically it's too, so basically it's too long. Didn't read. It's because he read one chapter. It's it's a hundred and fifty pages long for crying out loud. It's written in eighteen point font. So that's really two and a half pages with pictures. Uh, so so if I if I was to go back and reread this, I'd start where I, you left off. <laughs> so so. The, there's, I think there's two answers to that question. Number one is I would love for you to read my mom's story. So I'm going to hope that you read the introduction and that says I want to read more. In the end, I could give a rat's behind if you understand skill-based performance mode because the error rate's already one in a thousand. What are we going to do? Take it to two in a thousand? So skill-based is a little bit off the table, but you really need to understand it. Rule-based performance mode is where we live our lives. So it's good to understand it, but read the chapter on knowledge-based performance mode, and, and I'm going to give you a bonus. Read the myths. 
those myths are all the things that we've heard people say and talk about over the years that are, as you guys would say, crap. <laughs> crap. It's crap. That's, that's a reality. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's the way you would say it. You're right. Wrong country. Oh, crikeys. So uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Knowledge-based performance mode, if you just say, I'm only going to read one chapter of his book. And, but I would also go read the myths, because if you read the myths in your organization, you can eliminate the problems that the myths cause. And there's a lot of history in those myths. And you're going to read them and go, huh, huh, oops, that's a myth? I thought that was a real thing. So. Good on you, Rob. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I've all reread that chapter <laughs> again. Oh, Guys, I, I've got some final questions, but I would like to give you the opportunity, if that's all right. Just well, there's five for... books to be given away. Right. And, and I think the first one has already been given away. That was a okay. question. Yeah. So come forward and grab your, grab your book. Yeah. 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 I have a question. And this is very, very timely because I am starting to try and teach our organisation to think in gens. And I have this hypothesis that I'd like to test with you that... Rock roll. If I can get my operational leaders, the ones who make decisions about the way we design, to really understand the decision points we're putting in front of people as they do their everyday work, that by being able to identify those decision points, we'll get better at applying gems to work design because we know where people are going into knowledge and open no, I don't think I could paraphrase it much better, but the leaders have to understand this first, and when they understand it, they start to understand. Can I throw something strange out at y'all? Do I have a couple of minutes? I mean, yes. okay. Yeah. So if you define error properly, an action or inaction that unintentionally results in undesirable and condition these system outside set limits deviates from set of rule standards expectation. It's defined in the book. So if you take a may not even be in that chapter, you may have to th you may actually have to thumb through. If you um, if you define errors properly, then you can move to understanding knowledge based error mode. And so just I'll throw out to the group. Is there any such thing as a decision-making error? Can I have a decision-making error? Possibly. Yeah, of course you can, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Not by the science-based definition. If, if an error is an action or inaction that unintentionally results in something, I could decide right now to walk out and leave you guys behind and take your five books with you. And then I could decide to stay. But the error doesn't happen until the action occurs. So when we think we have decision-making errors, we pull it all the way back here and we focus on the decision. But if you think about it, once somebody's made a decision, I now still have time until the action to see a vulnerability. So do we want the leaders to understand when they put people 
in knowledge-based performance mode. I just want to twist that a little bit. What's your name, please? Elise. 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 We have to say knowledge-based performance mode. That's what it is. If we say knowledge mode, what do the people think it is? Something they know. But knowledge-based performance mode is gaps in the knowledge. Those, those really, and, I, and so what I do, I actually give you a framework for teaching gyms in the book. You can almost teach it a chapter at a time. So yes, the leaders have to understand that piece, which is why we start with them. And listen, the next day, somebody comes in and they say, well, when do you think that machine's going to be up? And they say, well, we're pretty sure that, it, that we're going to have it by day shift tomorrow. And everybody goes, that sounds like knowledge-based performance. Okay, well, let me go back and check. The day before, that decision was an option. Today, they want preciseness, and that requires additional information. Leaders start using it immediately if you do it right. So absolutely. And, and, and that's the piece they can screw up before they have the pressure of the organization to be good at it. So I, I like where you're going. Very good. So, so that piece is fine. The higher you go in leadership, this is my belief, the less they should be watching work. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because when they watch work, as an ex-operator, I thought you were watching me to tell me what I wasn't doing well or wasn't doing right, regardless of why you're there. Mm -hmm. So if they go out, go out to engage instead of observe. Yeah. Managers and above should spend 50% of their time in the field engaging, not observing asking four D's, asking Ted's questions. Are you all familiar with Ted's questions? Tell me, explain to me, describe to me, show me. So when you remove, when you move that rule for the leaders that I don't want you, I, and this is, again, conflict alert. People start talking about leaders need to understand work is imagined versus work is done. No, the frontline supervisor needs to understand that difference so they convey to the manager those deltas but that senior leader still needs to understand where we're performing within our values. Mm -hmm. And they can't do that if they're observing work because nobody trusts them enough to tell them. So. I'm with you, and that's where we need to change language, mm -hmm. right? Go out and engage. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. Engagement is out there for understanding and not about the work, about the people and our values. Good on you. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Love and it's anyone? I've got another question. Well, I'd like to ask, how do you go about motivating business leaders to take a different approach instead of waiting for the motivational factors to be something driven by legislation or fatality? Yeah. My findings, I still have a lot of companies that, that, that have an appetite for safety that's really in the reactive space. So I get called. Yeah. The regulators call me, and I'm tired of them. Keep calling me. Come in and fix it. Or we've had a fatality. In order for us to continue operating the space, yeah. We have to, we've been mandated to do something. And I'm really right. frustrated that we have to wait for that to be the motivating factor yeah. to initiate a change. And we can really be doing this without, like you were saying before, the cost of doing business is someone's life. And yeah. we need to get out of that space. So early on, I think that's where everyone starts. And that was the only business model we had was people needed us to fix a problem. And we were part of fixing that problem. And then somewhere probably 20 years ago, it shifted to Jill was 
an operations manager at this company. She now gets hired over in this company and in and, and a higher role, knows what this did for them. They convinced the leadership team. So our, our company has been pulled for probably 20, 25 years. We haven't gone out and had to convince anybody. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, we, we just started marketing 2019, 2020, something like that. And that was just because we thought that the, um, and, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, but people get hurt to a higher percentage in small companies than they do in large companies, but small companies couldn't afford us. And I said, that does not meet our mission of improving companies and lives. It, it, it meets the mission of improving companies and lives if they can afford us. So we had to pivot a little bit to, to get that pull from those organizations. And it's hard you know, when you're in the consultancy side to go, try to go out and find those because if they don't have what used to be called a burning platform, then they're, they're not doing anything. They're overwhelmed with the turnover and the problems they have and all of those things, they think this is one more thing they have to do. So you have to present it as um, something that relieves some of those stresses. And it really does. I mean, if you think about doing hop right, what happens to equipment reliability? It goes up. If equipment reliability goes up, what happens to maintenance worker exposure to risk? it goes down. If main exposure to risk goes down, what happens to the big S, safety? It goes up. So when you can start to put those things together, if they have an equipment reliability problem, you talk about that. If you've got customer problems, that, that quality is at this certain thing. When we go into companies, I was telling you this today, we've seen probably on average about a 30 to 40 to one ROI in the companies we've worked in. 30 to 40 to one. That didn't come in safety. It came in quality upsets. It came in equipment reliability. It came in, it came in availability. It came in uptime. It came in, all, it came in production where they got new production because they had more availability and new customers. Those are massive amounts of money that they didn't know was a problem until they understood that hop was this holistic thing related to operational excellence. I talk a lot with my hands, don't I? <laughs> but but they're miserable. They are, and they're stressed. And we talk about trying to measure safety. Yeah. Why don't we measure operational excellence? Yeah. Get them something to measure. All right, one more question, if anyone's up for it. Anyone, class, anyone, Mueller? What? Yeah, no, everybody's soft there, right? I, I was wondering, I know that there's a lot of people now asking, obviously, the new regulations around particularly the psychosocial risks. Yeah. This is all very related anyway. It is. I, I just wondered, in your business, have you had that coming up and what sorts of advice? We have, and, and we, we try to not be shiny object chasers, and we try not to create shiny objects. But we have to be understanding that there's things that come along that have to be paid attention to. So how many of y'all know the hop principles? And you can recite them and you use them. Here's what I would challenge an organization with. 
if you can create psychological safety without the hop principles, I'll kiss a mean dog's butt. The hop principles are the enabler for psychological safety. Think about this. If I don't understand that I'm in knowledge-based performance mode, I don't know I'm vulnerable. If I don't know I'm vulnerable, I can't come to you. Because you didn't tell me about knowledge-based performance mode, I don't come to you and tell you I don't know, which we've suffered with for a hundred or a thousand years. So I don't come to you and I don't create, I don't, you don't have to create a safe space. Your most seasoned workers, when they learn about knowledge-based performance mode, instead of them not saying, I don't know, what they'll go is, you know, I'm in a little bit of knowledge-based performance mode here. And everybody goes, ah, that's our cue. Let's figure out the answer. What'd they just do? They created psychological safety in the process of using the hop concepts and the hop principles and the hop science. I'm actually doing a talk down at this conference that basically challenges, I don't know how you can, how you can create psychological safety without the elements of the hop concepts that are the, or that are the how-tos. So we, we call, at least the way we do it, the great enabler. You want better quality? Do hop right, it enables it. You want psychological safety? Do hop right. We've, at, we've actually added personality diversity in as an element of human and organizational performance. How many of y'all think that different people with different personalities see and manage risk differently? Where is it in your hot principles? Well, if they see and manage risk differently, if I, if I look at psychological safety and I don't take personality tendencies into effect, I'm only touching the people that that piece of psych psychological safety touches. I need everybody to be comfortable giving input. I need everybody to understand when we're vulnerable. And to do that, we've got to bring personality diversity to the table. So am I answering your question? Is that, is that, yeah? Yeah. No, yeah. Just interested in yeah. Because it is obviously a lot of people are yeah. asking about it. Yeah. Um, and I suppose there's, there's a difference between psych safety, a lot of people are asking about that, versus psychological health and safety. And it's actually your risks, the combination. So we don't, we don't segregate. We let people do all of the, yeah, the, but this is different because, but this is different because. In our world, we handle all those in the same bucket. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times, people segregate it. Be, I don't even know how to say this easy. People segregate it because that's the product they want to sell. Mm -hmm. Or people segregate it. I've run into this in the States recently. They segregate it because it's the paper they want to write. Or they segregate it because it's the, the thesis that they're working on. But when you back up and look at it in the mosaic grande, then all those things are connected. And if we connect them for the people, that makes things easier, not harder. And we're not constantly chasing the shiny object, which is really an organizational problem that causes stress, burnout, you know, all of those other things. Now we've got to do, I heard somebody in Australia last time I was here, now we've got to do psychological safety. They're making us, it's the law. And I went, <laughs> all right, all right, mate. Thank you for for being here. I, I want to, we're going to finish off, and we, we discovered that we had this mutual love of amazing music. I thought and, I would talk long you, enough you, that he wouldn't do this. No, well, I can see there's a couple people up there that are just about to throw empty glasses at me, which because they're, they're a bit thirsty. So I figured 
uh, three quick questions okay. on music. Oh boy. Alright. So, so, yeah. Do you all oh, hear geez, about Josh. what I think about music? I didn't think so. It's a new book. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, right. Now, well, I, well hang on a minute. I, I like it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, mate, what's the song that will get you up on the dance floor? What music will get, what song will get you up there to jive? Mm. Jive. <laughs> Sorry, he's, a, he's a hip cat, daddy-o. Yeah. <laughs> Was the world black and white prop? Is it night fever? Well, uh, so... My personality is I don't like favorites because every, whatever is there is my favorite at the moment. But I, I would think a good Tone Loke song, uh, you know, shopping at the mall, maybe looking for some gear to buy. Funky yeah, a little All funky right. cold Medina will get me up on the... I mean, you can probably see that's what would do it for me. That was a surprise. I mean, unless, unless I'm with my wife, and then it's Garth Brooks' The Dance. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, lovely. Who's, who's your all-time favorite music artist? Oh, favorite. So I have three or four all-time all favorites, and they're, they're equal to me. So the Eagles oh. are, uh, I have a first-run virgin vinyl copy of Hotel California signed by the Eagles on the wall of my office. Wow. This is why I wanted to ask these questions, right? Because he told me this and, yesterday. And I was like, and oh, My best friend got it for me for my 60th birthday. And I just cherish it every day when I walk in. It's like, so the Eagles are, are up there. Garth Brooks is one of them because whatever he sings is, means something to me. And now a little twisted one, I love Taylor Swift. Because cause we, we, got, we got to see Taylor Swift. We, we got to see Taylor Swift when she was had just turned 17 years old, and she was in a pink dress, frilly dress, and pink boots, and a pink guitar, and had three songs, and came out two hours before Brad Paisley. And there were about maybe 100 people sitting in the audience. And to kind of follow her and the genius under which she oh, writes. Yeah. And my last one, the Bee Gees. They make up the predominance of my playlist on my iPad. And so when Fanny B. Tender comes on and I'm on a plane, everybody else better have headphones on because I'm singing. Mate, this has been amazing. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been Thank brilliant. you guys for having and, uh, me. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, well, thanks everybody. Please let's have some conversations while we're downstairs. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.